Let's, uh, let's take our Bibles, if we could, and open them to uh, the book of Zechariah, chapter 7. And uh, we've entitled this uh, session, Empty Ritual. Empty Ritual. So, we're actually at a turning point in the book of Zechariah. Remember that chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, was a call to repentance. As Zechariah is trying to get that post-exilic group to rebuild the temple. And then section 2, which is a big section that we finished last week, chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 6, verse 15, are basically eight visions that Zechariah received in a single night. And all of those deal with the, in one way or another, the sovereignty of God and the cleansing and purification of Israel And they deal with God's future purpose for the temple. And so they're sort of designed to get Israel to get busy in the present. So the end times, actually, contrary to what people say, has a tremendous effect on how we live now. Because when you study the end in the Bible, you see God's priorities. And after you see God's priorities, then you start to say to yourself, well, if those are God's priorities, maybe I should pursue God's priorities now. So you have, for example, Second Peter 3, verse 10, which says it describes the destruction of this world by fire. And then Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11 says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? So that's a very clear passage dealing with the fact that the future shapes our behavior in the present. Um, over in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, I didn't have you open there, but it's, it says, everyone who has this hope, what hope? The return of Christ. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So whether it's 1 John 3, 2 and 3, or uh, Revelation 3, verse 10 and 11, all of those passages basically communicate that the future impacts the present. And so that's what Zechariah is doing here in these eight night visions. The Holy Spirit is giving him a a picture of the future, and you learn in that that the temple is a big deal. So that ought to motivate the returnees to get the project moving. And last week we saw at the end of chapter 6 that those eight night visions end with the coronation or the crowning of the high priest Joshua. So that's what those eight visions point to. That's It's the end game. It's going to be the reigning king-priest, Jesus Christ, in the millennium. So with all of that being said, um, that section ends. 
And now we enter the third section of the book, which is called Questions and Answers. And basically, there's a question that some people ask of the Lord in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And that gives God, through Zechariah, an opportunity to give four answers. And boy, there's some answers, let me tell you. Um, and so the question is followed by four divine answers, and you see the breakdown there on the outline, um, chapters 7 and 8. And if we're fortunate, we're, we're only going to be able to get through chapter 7 tonight, if, if that. But that's how, that's, that, this is how chapter 7 and 8 comprise its own section. So part 1, call to repentance, chapter 1. Part two, the eight night visions, stretches all the way through the end of uh, chapter six. Part three, chapters seven and eight, are a question and four answers from God to Israel through the prophet Zechariah. So with all that being said, let's look at the question. The question is in chapter seven, verses one through three. We have a date, verse one. The questioners, verse 2, and then, then the question they ask is in verse 3. So take a look at the date here. It's very interesting. Verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, Darius is a Persian king. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Notice the precision here. On the fourteenth day of the ninth month, which is, I think you pronounce that, Chislev, I've got that right. So you notice this expression here, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And it gives a date. Now this is the second date that's been given in the book of Zechariah. You might recall that the first time a date was given was in Zechariah 1 verse 7 where it gives us the date of the night visions on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius. So that would be about 519. And when you contrast that with what we just read, it's basically almost roughly two years later. So now we're in the fourth year of Darius. So about two years, you know, has passed in between the night visions and what's going to happen here in chapters 7 and 8. The month is Chislev, Chislev, and here is a Jewish calendar and how it sort of overlays the Gentile calendar. Um, You can see the Jewish months of the year on the outer ring and then... You can see the Gentile calendar sort of on the inner ring. And so Chislev or Kislev would be basically our month of December. And so since this happened on in the fourth year, and then it goes on and it says the fourth day of the ninth month, we believe that these questions were posed um, December 7th. 518 B.C. 
So again, almost two years has passed between the night visions and what's what's happening here. So it is interesting to me that this lot of detail about the setting is given. And I think the reason the Holy Spirit gives us this is to show us that this is actually real history. Uh, this is not, you know, as I like to say, veggie tales or Jack and the Beanstalk time. This is real history that actually happened. And then we move away from the date to the questioners. And you see that there in verse 2. It says, now the town of Bethel had sent, um, and here's some more names I can't pronounce, uh, Sharzer and, uh, let's see, Reg Emelech, I think is how you say that, and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. So the town that these questioners came from is Bethel. You'll see the word Bethel there in verse 2. Where is Bethel? Dr. Constable tells us that Bethel is about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. So it's a little town nearby Jerusalem. And that little town um, apparently sent some ambassadors, and they're, they're given by the name here. Specific names, just like we have a specific date. So those are, these are real people. And... Why did they approach the priests and the prophets that we'll see in verse 3? Because they were trying to seek the favor of the Lord. Now, that's not, a, that's not a bad idea, is it, when you think about it? Hey, I want to seek God's favor. Um, I want to seek His will. I want to seek what, what He thinks about things. And it's kind of interesting how so few people... Um, actually do that you know it's they're so busy with whatever that they really never seek out God and so here's a little group of people from a little town sent out a couple ambassadors and they're trying to seek the favor of the Lord and they have a they have a spiritual question so the question that they ask is right there in verse 3 Speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying. So this was obviously a spiritual question because they sought out the priests who were functioning or basically trying to rebuild the temple at this time. And they were seeking out the prophets, people like Zechariah. So obviously, if you have a spiritual question, you go to spiritual leadership, and that's what this little uh, two-person uh, ambassadorship is doing from the town of Bethel. And what's their question? Their question is, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done for these many years? Um what are they asking about? Well, these many years relates to the temple that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had destroyed 70 years earlier. And they had started kind of a ritual. And when, the, uh, when it got to be the um, ninth day of the fifth month, they would have a ritual where they would kind of mourn over the destruction of that temple. They would fast. 
because it really was a terrible, you know, time in Jewish history when Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed that temple just before the Babylonian captivity 70 years earlier. And basically what they're wanting to know is now that the temple is being rebuilt, should we keep keep up the ritual? So Dr. Constable said, whoever these men were, they wanted to know if they should continue to weep and abstain from food, i.e. fast, which had become traditional, but which the Mosaic law did not require. The only fast that the Mosaic law prescribed was on the Day of Atonement. So their question, Dr. Constable says, was a very reasonable one. You know, we started this ritual of mourning and fasting related to the destruction of the temple on the ninth day of the fifth month, and so should we keep it up? Now that the temple is being rebuilt, after all, the law of Moses, you know, doesn't tell us to keep, uh, you know, it doesn't prescribe a fast uh, for this, but we started it anyway. So should we keep going is basically what they're saying. And, and, and you notice the expression many years. They had done this for many years. How many years is that? That's basically 70 years. So when they went into captivity, um, this particular day would roll around and they would, you know, fast and mourn and weep to commemorate the destruction of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had brought into existence. They're kind of following in the pattern of Jeremiah, you remember, who we believe wrote, probably wrote the book of Lamentations. Why is it called the book of Lamentations? Because Jeremiah is lamenting. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah was just so, uh, I don't know, can I use modern psychology, depressed, sad um, when the temple was destroyed because that's the hub of the whole nation. If you don't have a temple, you don't really have a nation anymore. So it's kind of interesting that in the middle of the book, in the middle of all of this lamenting, Jeremiah says, his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In other words, if God kept verbatim his prophecies of the destruction of the temple under Nebuchadnezzar, then God is going to keep verbatim his prophecies of restoration. So that's why right in the middle of the book of Lamentations, there's this hope, you know, that Jeremiah uh, expresses in the book of Lamentations. But this was a special day. The Solomonic temple that had been built in 966 BC and was finally destroyed in 586 BC. Um, that destruction was commemorated and they commemorated it all the way through the 70 years of the Babylonian deportation and they had a very special day for this. The ninth of Ab. And you can see that Ab is on the 5th, if you look at the outer ring there, which gives you the Jewish months, it would be the 5th month. Now, this is very interesting because according to Jewish tradition, Temple Number 2, which they were just getting busy rebuilding, the temple that would be functioning at the time of Jesus Christ, 
That temple, Jesus said, would be torn apart brick by brick, you'll remember. And this time it would not be Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that would destroy Temple 2. It would be Titus of Rome in a, in a terrible event called A.D. 70. And what is very interesting in Jewish tradition is the second temple was destroyed on the exact same day that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed temple number one. And this is why this particular day, now that two temples have been destroyed in Judaism, continues to be commemorated, you know, amongst Israelis today. It's the ninth day of the fifth month. And you say, well, how do we really know that temple two was destroyed on the exact same day as temple number one? It's just a matter of looking at Jewish tradition. Here is a quote from Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. And he writes a lot concerning the destruction of Temple 2 and A.D. 70. He says, so Titus, that's the general of Rome that destroyed Temple 2, retired into the tower of Antonia and resolved to storm the temple the next day early in the morning with his whole army and to encamp around about the holy house. But as for that house, God had certain long ago doomed it to to fire. And now that fatal day was come, according to the revolution of ages. It was the, and he gives the month of Ab, upon which it was formerly burnt by Nebuchadnezzar. He mentions here a day. And here Josephus says, on that, basically on that day, when Titus destroyed temple number two, it was formerly burnt by the king of Babylon. That would be Nebuchadnezzar. Although these flames took their rise from the Jews themselves and were occasioned by them. So Josephus and his, his antiquities. And I can't remember. I may have the reference wrong. I don't think it's antiquities. It might be the wars of the Jews. Or antiquity is one of the two. I I did look it up before I came in, obviously, to put this slide together. But Josephus indicates that Temple 2 was destroyed on the exact same day of Temple Number 1. So what happened to the day in 586 B.C. was replicated in A.D. 70. So that's why this particular day in Judaism, this time of fasting and weeping and mourning, continues on. So what we're seeing here in Zechariah is just the beginning of that tradition. It would continue on and it would accelerate, obviously, when Temple 2 was destroyed on the exact same day. Here is a reference to the Mishnah, um, which basically is um, a book of extra-biblical Jewish tradition. Oh, I had to read through a lot of that in seminary. And when you read through the Mishnah, which is what the Pharisees were all into, rules and regulations, it makes you really grateful that we're non-legalistic Christians that believe in this finite revelation here, 66 books. Because that, that reading through that is an absolute maze. I mean, you wouldn't believe the rules they were re- required to keep. 
That's why when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are all upset because their extra biblical traditions uh, told you what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And that's where Jesus says you've made null the word of God through your traditions. So it's like reading through the IRS tax code is what it's like. It's just exhausting reading. In fact, it's oppressive reading through it. It's it's completely oppressive. Um, you just psychologically and emotionally feel the, the weight of the world on your shoulders just trying to read this stuff. And you start to understand what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you what? Give you rest. Why do they need rest? They were laboring under Phariseeism, under this maze of man-made rules. But there is um, part of the Mishnah that indicates that Temple 2 was destroyed on the exact same day as Temple 1, many centuries later. It says, on the ninth of Ab, the decree was made against our forefathers that they should not enter the land. They're talking about all the things that happened on this day. A decree was made by the forefathers that they should not enter the land. That's Numbers 13 and 14. Number two, the first temple. And number three, the second temple were destroyed all on that exact day. And then it talks about some other things that happened on that day. So if all of this tradition is true, and I don't know why we would doubt it, Um, in terms of history, what you learn is that God is a God of precision. Um, Things happen on particular dates and sometimes on the exact same day. So God deals in precision. He deals with math. He deals with calculations like this. And this is where this whole feast day um, and morning and all these kinds of things came from on the ninth day of the fifth month. And, of course, this is a good 600 years before Temple 2 would be destroyed, but this is the beginning of that tradition. So basically they're asking, we've been, you know, we've been memorializing and commemorating with sadness for 70 years. Uh, it's not commanded in the Mosaic Law for us to do this. Temple 2 is about ready to be rebuilt, so should we keep mourning is their question. So this little group comes from Bethel, and they come to the priests and the prophets, and they just ask this question. And now God begins to talk. This gives God an opportunity to give four answers. How do I know there's four answers here? Because of the expression, then the word of the Lord came to me saying. Every time you see that expression, we have a new oracle from God through Zechariah. So you'll notice right there in verse 4, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying. That is oracle number 1. Then look at verse 8, same chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, so now we have Oracle 2. And then look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then the word 
of the Lord of hosts came saying. Now we're in oracle number three. And then look at verse 18, chapter 8. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying. Now we're on oracle number four. So you notice that when, when I put this outline together, which is a common outline, it's not original with me, uh, I'm grouping the material based on a literary clue in the actual biblical text. And that is how you outline things in the Bible. We're seeing some of this in Sunday school as we're dealing with Ezekiel 36 and the Middle East meltdown. It's the same thing. You try to look for a repetition of literary clues because what happens with a lot of preachers is they put their own outline on the Bible because it rhymes or, oh, no, I've only got 20 minutes left to cover this, so let's space it out. And, you know, we've got to get the, the people to lunch on time and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's not how you outline the Bible. When you outline the Bible, you look at the marks that God himself gives. Okay. Then it's not your outline. It's God's outline. So here we go. Here is Oracle number one, chapter seven, verses four through seven. Then there'll be oracle number 2, chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. Then there'll be oracle number 3, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And then there'll be oracle number 4, chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. So what is God saying in oracle number 1? He is condemning empty ritualism. He's, he's, he's making a condemnation against this ritual that they had started because they were mourning the effect. You know, what happened to Temple One? The effect, but not the cause behind it. In other words, they were upset over the fact that Temple One was destroyed. They weren't over up they weren't upset about their violations of God's law that forced God's hand to discipline his people. They weren't upset about that. They weren't upset about the cause. They were upset about the effect. And God is saying you need to be more upset about the cause than the effect. You need to be more upset about what got you into this mess rather than what the mess looks like. I mean, rather than cry over the spilled milk, we got to figure out how did the milk get spilled, you know, kind of thing. And this, you know, it's tempting to say this is just stuff for people living 500 years before Christ. Nonsense. We're just, we're exactly like this. We're into, you know, certain things happening on certain days. We're into calendars. We're into feasts and fasts. And sometimes you get so hung up on the the holiday that you forget what's behind it. I mean, Christmas is just like that for us, right? You know, we're all into, you know, presents, and which aren't bad things. Um, and we forget the reality behind the ritual. That's, that's what they forgot. And once you forget the reality behind the ritual, it's nothing more than an empty ritual. So the Lord takes this opportunity to point this out to them in Oracle number 1, chapter 7, verses 4 through 7. And he points out two things. 
Israel's insincerity, verses 4 and 5. And number two, Israel's selfishness, verses 6 and 7. So let's look first of all at their insincerity. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, verse 5, God speaking through Zechariah. Say to all of the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, look at this now, this is a great question. Was it actually for me that you fasted? I mean, you've been following this ritual for 70 years, and I have a question for you, God says, as they're asking, should we continue this ritual? Uh, who are you doing this for? Are you doing this for you, or are you doing this for me? And this is the power of um, religion. Religion will get you so caught up in doing things, this and that, do's and don'ts, that you forget the purpose behind it to begin with. So the Lord says this is nothing but an empty religion. You notice the expression 70 years there? That's the 70-year captivity that they faithfully kept this particular day to commemorate the destruction of Temple One. Are you doing this for you or are you doing this for me? You're mourning the effect the destruction of the temple, and your eyes are not on the cause of the temple's destruction. So as you go through Old Testament and New Testament, you'll see a lot of very sharp condemnations of empty ritual. You see this in the writings of Isaiah, the pre-exilic prophet, back in the 7th century, Isaiah says in Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord said, because this people approaches me with their words and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And their reverence for me consists of the commandment of men that is taught. When I was a youth in the Anglican church that I grew up in because I was an acolyte or an altar boy in that church. I had the whole thing memorized. I knew when to stand up. There's a lot of standing up and sitting down in that church. I knew when to stand up. I knew when to sit down. I knew like clockwork because I had been under this, you know, for years as a youth. Um, I knew like clockwork the whole service by heart. I knew the the prayers of the people. I knew the responses. Um, I knew the pastor's sermon and how long he was supposed to preach, which was exactly seven minutes. You can see I'm kind of rebelled against that as I've gotten older. And, uh, in fact, he wasn't the pastor. He was the priest. I mean, um, and I don't know if it was... We did the Stations of the Cross. I had those memorized. Um, in hindsight, you know, was it a terrible environment to be in? No, because I think seeds were planted. But the truth of the matter is, if I had died during that time period, I would have gone right to hell. Would have gone directly into hell because I did not know Jesus personally. Didn't know anything about a personal 
relationship with Jesus. And so that is the power of ritualism. And I don't think the Anglican church started off that way. When I got saved and went back to that same church to visit, suddenly the stuff they were doing was making sense to me. Oh, that's why they do this and that's why they do that. But someone that doesn't have any relationship with God at all, it's just an empty formula. And so this is what Isaiah and Zechariah are condemning. Jesus, in Mark 7, verse 13, issued the same criticism. He says, thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things such as this. You know, I don't think God is would be against them mourning the destruction of the temple if they were more into the cause of the destruction rather than the effect of the destruction. Then that wouldn't be a problem, but they had lost sight of that. And that's what he's saying in verses 4 and 5 is you're insincere. And then verses 6 and 7, he basically condemns them for their selfishness. The ritual is more for you than it is for me, in other words, God says. And look at what he says in verse 6. When you eat and drink, in other words, when you go through this ritual, when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? And do you not drink for yourselves? So you're doing it for yourself. And a lot of people are like that. I spent a lot of my life prior to salvation that way. I went because, first of all, my parents made me go. But I always kind of felt, you know, a little spiritual liver quiver, you know, after the Sunday morning mass, you know, was over. And, I, you know, I felt like I, I could, you know, look at all my friends out playing and kind of, you know, what's wrong with them, you know, kind of thing. I went through this ritual and they didn't. So, you know, let me break my arm patting myself on the back. So the the whole thing really became something for myself rather than it was for God. And that's what God is condemning them here for. You're eating for yourself. You're drinking for yourself. But you're not doing this for me because you're not mourning the reason that caused the temple's destruction. It's just empty tradition. And then as you look at verse 7, he says, Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited. So Zechariah, God through Zechariah says, I'm telling you now exactly what I spoke through Isaiah. The former prophets. The pre-exilic prophets. God through Isaiah, before the temple was destroyed, condemned the, the people for the exact same reason. Uh, These people honor me with their words and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So now that that exile has happened and you've come back from the captivity, you're repeating the same mistakes. So everything that I spoke through Isaiah, I'm now speaking through Zechariah. And by the way, um, the words are the same. 
the ideas are the same. It's just you're in different circumstances now. Now you're rebuilding what was destroyed. Um, when I spoke these things through Isaiah and the other pre-exilic prophets, the land was prosperous. It was inhabitable. And it was flourishing in the Negev. There's a map there with a circle around the Negev towards the southern part of the nation. And the nation of Israel really never thought the 70-year captivity would happen. I mean, the economy was up. Unemployment was down. They had a Republican in the White House. They were winning some of their wars. I mean, how... How bad could it be? And God kept condemning them for empty ritual. And they wouldn't listen to the former prophets. And so the exile came. The northern kingdom, as you know, was scattered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The remaining southern kingdom of Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And they kept mourning and they kept fasting. Every time of the year this rolled them around. And now they're going back. And they're committing the exact same mistake. So you'll notice this in the outworking of biblical revelation is God doesn't contradict himself in his word. I mean, what what Zechariah is saying here is exactly what Isaiah told them way, way back. The circumstances are different, but it's the exact same message. And that's important to understand because that's how you recognize false teaching. If the message of Zechariah was completely disharmonious with Isaiah, you could dismiss Zechariah as a false teacher or a false prophet on the authority of Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. You know, that a, a false teacher or a false prophet it will say, let us follow other gods. So the moment one prophet B contradicts prophet A is the moment you're dealing with a false prophet. And you're to take such a prophet in the age of the law and you're to stone them to death. Um, Here you'll notice that God through Zechariah says Zechariah is a true prophet because his message harmonizes with the pre-exilic prophets. That's why he mentions here the former prophets. (laughs) Now, that moves us into oracle number two. Oracle one, empty ritual. Oracle two, what caused the problem to begin with? You're upset about the destruction of the temple, which is nothing but an empty ritual. Let me now explain to you in oracle number two, the cause behind the first temple's destruction. So therefore, as you're rebuilding the temple, temple two, don't repeat these same covenant violations. And so in Oracle two, chapter seven, verses eight through 14, you have condemnation of past covenant failure. So we have covenant requirements, verses eight through 10, covenant rebellion, verses 11 and 12. And then covenant discipline or judgment, uh, verses 13 and 14. So since your ritual is empty because you're 
recognizing the effect and not the cause, let me tell you what the cause of the problem was. This is what your ritual is not recognizing. I mean, you're, fa- you're fasting and you're mourning because your first temple was destroyed, but you're not fasting and mourning because of the behavior that caused the first temple to be destroyed. So notice the covenant requirements, verses 8 through 10. Now, how do we know this is a fresh oracle? Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, which is a near repetition of verse 4. So you know that this is something new that God is disclosing here. And then you go down to verse 9 and it says, Thus the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Now he's bringing the nation back to the Mosaic Law, which was given by God to Moses all the way back in 1445 B.C., long time ago. And the Mosaic Law is set up as a suzerain-vassal treaty. The suzerain is the superior, the vassal is the inferior. This is a common treaty structure in the ancient Near East, when you study the archaeology of the time, and God lays out the covenant like a suzerain-vassal treaty. So there's a preamble. The whole book of Deuteronomy is laid out this way, by the way. There's a preamble, and then there's a prologue, basically um, tracing the historical relationship between the parties, And then chapters 5 through 26 is the covenant obligations. So the suzerain or the superior comes to the vassal or the inferior and says, if you obey the covenant text, I'll bless you. If you disobey the covenant text, I'll curse you. This is very different than the Abrahamic covenant, which was given at the time of Abraham six centuries before this which gave Israel ownership of her blessings. But whether Israel possesses or enjoys what she owns, because you can own something and not enjoy it, depends on whether Israel is going to keep her obligation under the suzerain-vassal treaty. So what Israel was supposed to do is chapters 5 through 26. Chapter 5 is the Ten Commandments. And then you can outline chapters five, the rest of the, that section there by showing how commandment one plays itself out as they were about to enter the land. Section two, how commandment two plays itself out as they were to enter the land. And so you can actually come up with a very easy to follow outline of chapters five through 26. And then there were storage and reading instructions in a suzerain vassal treaty. In this case, the covenant was to be stored in the tabernacle, and they were supposed to pull, uh, the, 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 the suzerain had a copy, and the vassal had a copy. And according to suzerain-vassal treaty structure, they were to review the language regularly. So there are instructions in the book of Deuteronomy about how the nation is to publicly read this document to make sure that they're all remembering it, and complying with it. 
And then every suzerain vassal treaty calls witnesses as the covenant is being entered into. The problem is who can be a witness for God? No one can. So God says, okay, I'll summon the heavens and the earth as my witnesses. And then Deuteronomy 28, that's the spine of the Old Testament. Verses 1 through 14 are blessings for obedience. Verses 15 through 68. Gosh, 1 through 14 is a smaller ground than verses 15 through 68. There's this much blessings and this much curses. You kind of get the idea that God knew what they would do. Here are the curses for disobedience. And so this is the background of the entire Old Testament and New Testament for that matter. And God is saying this is why Temple One was destroyed. It's because you didn't do your part in terms of my covenant, the suzerain vassal treaty. You as the vassal didn't do your part. So I brought discipline which I was obligated to do because you entered into the covenant with me. And so all Zechariah is doing here is reminding them of what got them into the mess that they found themselves in, getting them to see the cause and not just the effect. The ritual that they were involved in was all about the effect and their eyes were off the cause. So God says, here's what caused the problem. So what caused the problem? Verse 9, they didn't dispense true justice. Now notice the word true. Verse 10, excuse me, verse 9 in front of the word justice. Because God's definition of justice is very different than the social justice movement today. Where they basically think justice is communism or Marxism. You know, somebody got ahead and they have a bigger business than me and they have a bigger house than me. They obviously took it uh, unfairly. Um, That's that's not God's definition of justice. Communism is not what God thinks of when he thinks of justice. Um, When God thinks of justice, he thinks of people being oppressed. In other words, if you got rich by not paying your employees... That's what God is upset about, those kind of things. If you put someone to death because you want their property, as Ahab did, you'll recall, in the king's books, uh, that's what God is upset about. So they they were just ripping each other off. They were stealing from each other. That's why in the the, uh, Mosaic Law, God keeps saying your balances need to be fair. The weights need to be fair. Um, you know, don't don't charge some, somebody something for far more than it's worth. Don't cheat people. And they were not doing that. They were not dispensing true justice. And you can find provision after provision after provision of the Mosaic Law, which clearly spelled that out, and they weren't following it. What else caused the first temple's destruction? They weren't dispensing true justice and they weren't practicing kindness. You mean God is into kindness? Like being nice to each other? 
within the community of the believing. Second um, Peter chapter one verses five through seven talks about the portrait of spiritual growth. What spiritual growth looks like. See, how do you know you're spiritually growing? Well, I go to Sugarland Bible Church and I, I go to three public teachings a week. And that makes me a growing Christian. Well, that might be a step on the right road, but that doesn't make you a growing Christian. What makes you a growing Christian is when you take the studies done at Sugarland Bible Church and you start to apply them to your life. So that's why Second Peter 1 verses 5 through 7 says start with faith and add to faith goodness, add to goodness knowledge, add to knowledge self-control. So when my wife says, um, honey, can you take out the trash? Can you empty the dishwasher? I don't say, what? You know, I don't react in an angry way. Of course, I have no credibility with her when I say that, but that's how I know I'm growing on that particular day. You know, I'm not irritable, I'm not mad at everything. How dare you inconvenience me? Don't you know I'm a man of God? <laughs> I need to study the Bible. No, it's forbearance, patience. So that's what self-control is. Perseverance, meaning at the slightest little problem, I don't just throw in the towel. I must not be God's will for me to do this. I'm, I'm experiencing some opposition. No, you persevere in the midst of storms. You're godly. The last one is love, which is agape, selfless love. And right before you get to love, you get to this expression, brotherly kindness. Now, this is the very reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So Old Testament and New Testament, God is into, you know, whether you're, you're, you're Israel and under the suzerain vassal treaty, or whether you're under the law of Christ, New Testament. Apparently God is into kindness, not provoking each other, not speaking evil against each other, etc. So that's what they weren't doing, and that's why temple number one was destroyed. They weren't dispensing justice. They weren't practicing kindness. What else do we have here in verse 10, excuse me, verse 9? And compassion to his brother. So the New Testament says, so while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. Hey, let's be good to everybody, but charity starts at home, right? We gotta, we gotta be good to each other, or there's not gonna be a lot of goodness here to spill over to the unsaved world. So they weren't practicing that. Commandments 1 through 5 taught them how to relate to God. Commandments 6 through 10 taught them how to relate to each other. How do you relate to God? Don't use his name in vain. Don't make graven images. Um, Keep the Sabbath. 
How do you relate to each other? Don't commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. I mean, if you're committing adultery with your neighbor's wife, you're probably not showing a lot of love towards your your neighbor. Don't covet. Don't steal. You know, don't murder. So you have vertical commandments and horizontal commandments. Commandments 1 through 5, basically vertical. Commandments 6 through 10, horizontal. So they they weren't practicing these horizontals. And that's why judgment came. So I guarantee it, through 70 years of fasting and mourning, they weren't thinking about any of this stuff. But they were going through the ritual. They were carrying that candle, as I did, as an acolyte in the Anglican church, with vestments on and all that stuff, um, doing all the ritual, but not thinking about the reality behind the ritual. And cheer up, it gets worse. Look at verse 10. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger of the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. What else were they doing? They weren't, not only were they not looking out for the widows and orphans, but they were actually oppressing the widows and the orphans. Can you imagine that? Going to people that have no parents and oppressing them. Going to widows who have no spouse, uh, no husband, oppressing the most vulnerable. Um, James 1 verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Boy, we have a lot of opportunities to do this here at Sugarland Bible Church, don't we? We have a lady in our church that's been here for a long time that's having a difficult time right now because... She lost her husband. She's falling at home. She needs somebody to kind of look out for her. And that's why we send out those emails, giving people opportunities to minister within the body, you know, at this level. And the Israelis, the Hebrews under the Suzerain Vassal Treaty were not only neglecting those people, but they were oppressing them. They were oppressing the poor. They were oppressing the stranger. Look at that word right there, stranger. Who is the stranger? The stranger is the non-Israeli amongst them. Now, I want to be really careful on this because the progressive left has hijacked verses like this to promote an open borders um, nation. George Soros, porous borders nation. In fact, when our former president, Barack Obama, did um, what is called executive amnesty, where he issued a decree, basically, an executive order, And he gave a whole bunch of people who were in the country illegally the opportunity to be here legally. When he issued executive amnesty, he quoted the Bible. He quoted Exodus 
22, somewhere in there, which has a verse in it like this about not oppress the stranger or the alien. And this is why I have here the words of James Hoffmeyer in a very good book called The Immigration Crisis. Because people on the left have suddenly discovered what a neat book the Bible is. And there it looks like there's passages that promote what they want to do, which is, you know, you can come into the country illegally and you don't have to go by the proper vetting procedure to enter the country. And, uh, voila, you can become a citizen, uh, even though you cut in line in front of everybody else. And, um, by the way, God's word teaches this. And you have to be really, this is why a knowledge of Hebrew is so pivotal. And all of these social justice warriors quoting this passage are not graduates of Chafer Seminary. Because if they were graduates of Chafer Seminary, they would know Hebrew. And they would understand that they are misusing the Bible when they use the Bible to promote executive amnesty. So James Hoffmeyer says, in the Bible, the alien, ger, and that's what it is here in verse 10. It's ger. Was a person who entered Israel and followed legal procedures to obtain recognized standing as an alien. An example would be Ruth, the Moabitess, who said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, on their way back into the land of Israel, your people will be my people, your God will be what? My God. So she wasn't in the country to cause trouble. She was in there to submit to the culture. So Hoffmeyer says, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, alien Ger was a person who entered Israel and followed legal procedures to obtain recognized standing as a resident alien. And even though um, Ruth, the Moabitess, was allowed to enter the country in the book of Ruth, God also said that the Moabites and the Ammonites in the book of Deuteronomy cannot enter. So God himself recognized in the Old Testament the distinction between being a ger, in other words, being like Ruth, and those who entered the country illegally for nefarious reasons. In the Hebrew Bible, the alien, Ger, was a person who entered Israel and followed legal procedures to obtain recognized standing as resident aliens. Hoffmeyer says, hence, I will use the term alien or Ger throughout the book to refer to legal immigrants. And by the way, America, when you look at her history, has had probably in the history of mankind the most generous um, immigration policy ever in terms of allowing people in. You just have to enter legally. You have to follow the rules. You have to take a cultural test, you know, to see if you really understand American civilization and American history. Um, what America doesn't want is people coming in illegally and building a parallel society in that culture which doesn't respect the laws of the land. This is the difference between ger and a completely different word 
that's going to be used here. So he says, hence I will use the term alien or gear throughout the book to refer to legal immigrants. Clearly there was a distinction between the alien gear, like Ruth, and a foreigner, look at this, different word, Nekar or Zar in the Old Testament. And this difference will be clear in the, in the narratives and the stories and the laws that will be reviewed in the following sections, close quote. And what he's saying is the word that's used here, and I double-checked before I came in to make sure I wasn't messing things up, for stranger is ger. It is not nekar, and it is not czar. So when God says, be kind to the stranger, he's not saying, hey, open borders is great. Hey, illegal immigration is great. Hey, executive amnesty is great. That's the way Obama was quoting this. But that's not what it says. If that was what was being said here, it wouldn't use the word care. It would use those other words. So he was talking about people like Ruth, who came in and submitted to the culture. He wasn't talking about people coming in trying to build a parallel society and bring in a different legal system within the culture. You follow what I'm saying here? Because if you don't understand this, you'll be confused because even the President of the United States quotes the Bible out of context. By the way, who else does that? I think the devil does that, by the way. Satan quotes the Bible, right? Just quotes it out of context. So when people, when the progressive left uses all of these passages, they're not artic, they probably don't even understand the distinctions I'm drawing here. It's just a neat passage and it supports our agenda. So let's confuse everybody by making everybody think that illegal immigration is spiritual. That's not what this says. If, if that's what it was saying, it would use a completely different Hebrew word. And that's what Hoffmeyer points out. So the people were oppressing people like Ruth is what upset God. That's the stranger. And then one other fast thing, and we'll stop here, verse 10. They were oppressing the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. So they were taking poor people and oppressing them. And then it says they were devising evil against one another. In their what? What does it say there? In their heart. So Jesus in the New Testament will say things like this. If you're unjustifiably angry with your brother, you're a murderer. If you lust in your heart for a woman that you're not married to, you're an adulterer. Because sin begins in the heart. And you read that and you say, wow, Jesus had some radical teachings. But if you look at this very carefully, what Jesus was saying in the New Testament wasn't radical at all. God already said that all the way back in the time of Zechariah. He mentions the word heart. They were turning on each other because the evil was emanating emanating from their heart. 
Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it spring the, the, from it flow the springs of life. Thomas Jefferson, and I think I'll stop here. Thomas Jefferson was a student of the philosophers of the world. Did you know that? And what impressed Thomas Jefferson about Jesus Christ was the fact that Jesus Christ pushed his morals into the hearts of people. Thomas Jefferson says, I've read all the philosophers and none of them do this. Only Jesus does this. And I realize there's all these attacks on Jefferson and, you know, people get very upset when you call him a Christian. But that's what Thomas Jefferson called himself. Thomas Jefferson said of himself, I am a real Christian. He didn't like how the denominations were corrupting Christianity, in his opinion, but he loved the pure teachings of Jesus Christ. And Thomas Jefferson had some strange views about the Trinity in one part of his life, but in other parts of his life, he was orthodox. So I recognize there's a lot of controversy about Thomas Jefferson, but this much I know Thomas Jefferson respected Jesus. On this basis, Jefferson says he, that's Jesus, pushed his scrutinies into the heart of man and erected his tribunal in the region of his thoughts and purified the waters at the fountainhead. Jefferson says, I've studied all the philosophers and none of them do this. This is unique to Jesus Christ. And people like Jefferson think that Jesus was very radical in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you actually go back and read Zechariah 7, verse 10, you learn that Jesus really wasn't that radical at all. He was just restating what the Mosaic Law says. So what caused the trouble? Oppressing widows and orphans, oppressing the poor, oppressing the lawful stranger, devising evil in their hearts, not dispensing true justice, not showing kindness to each other, not being compassionate to each other. And that's what caused the temple one to be destroyed. So you're all upset about the temple being destroyed, but you're not thinking about why the temple was destroyed, according to the suzerain vassal treaty structure. I'm six minutes over, so let's stop. If you got to take off uh, and collect your young ones, we're probably crawling on the walls by now. This would be a good time to do that. Any Q&A anybody wants to do?